Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Oliver Gunasakra, who's the CEO of Impossible Metals, um, whose mission is to preserve the deep ocean uh, ecology whilst whilst they unlock the potential of the seabed critical metals, um, accelerate the transition uh, to sustainable energy. Um, They've built an underwater robot, uh, which selectively picks up uh, these battery rocks uh, without harming uh, the environment. Um, Oliver is a business leader. He's over 30 years uh, of experience, encompassing three of the major technology trends in mobile computing, cloud computing, um, and multimedia technologies. Um, and he's on the podcast today to sort of discuss um, Impossible Metals' approach to deep sea mining, uh, using underwater vehicles that collect metals from uh, critical minerals and metals for EV batteries without harming uh, the seabed ecosystem. So that's uh, welcome Oliver to the podcast, um, and let's te- let him tell us a little bit more about um, about the company and about their uh, technology. So h- how you doing, Oliver? Yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm super happy to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate your time. You're over obviously in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, at the time of obviously recording this podcast so i just wanted you to just tell us a little bit more about your career about your background um and obviously we we were just discussing before we uh before we went live um you move over to you originally from the uk moved over to silicon valley um 18 years ago so i just wanted if you can just um give our audience a little bit uh background about yourself um to sort of current day yeah, um, grew up in the UK, uh, did uh, electrical electronics at, at school. Uh, I was fortunate to join uh, the small startup in Cambridge, UK, uh, called Arm, uh, that does uh, microprocessors for a whole bunch of chips. Uh, I, I ran kind of the mobile biz dev, uh, at Arm uh, for about a decade, uh, got the opportunity to work in Japan, uh, last job at Arm was after Arm had gone public was uh, the VP of Corporate Development, where I was looking at actually acquiring and investing in startups, of, of which I did a few. Uh, that is the job that ultimately got me to relocate to to Silicon Valley uh, about eighteen years ago. Uh, and then I left Arm. I really had the bug to go back to smaller companies. You know, Arm was a few thousand people public, so I worked as a consultant to a bunch of startups. Uh, and then in 2012, I founded uh, my own startup that was really in the video compression and streaming space. Uh, we ultimately ran that for seven years as CEO and, and co-founder, uh, sold it to Xilinx, which is now AMD, and they now have a chip that has this new way of encoding video for live streams. Uh, we won business with Amazon Twitch. Uh, and then, you know, 2020 kind of came around and uh, was thinking about what to do and got increasingly concerned about the climate. Uh, we had really bad wildfires. And uh, I happened to discover that there were these rocks on the seabed floor that had all the metals that we absolutely need to electrify to move away from fossil fuels. 
but I was a bit horrified to see that the tech that people were using was actually designed in the 1960s. It's this dredger and riser pump system. And it seemed strange to me that there hadn't been any technical innovation in that collection. And so I uh, decided to create, you know, what would be my third company called Impossible Metals, focused on really building very advanced 21st century technology to pick up this resource with less environmental impact and less cost and be more scalable. And that's where we are with Impossible Metals. Yeah. I just wanted to just give us a quick overview of the uh, or a quick snapshot of the company. Yeah, um, we are about a three-year-old uh, technology startup. Uh, we've raised about $12.5 million to date, and we are primarily building these new form of autonomous underwater vehicles or AUVs or uh, you know autonomous robots that can go up to four miles, 6,000 meters underwater to the seabed floor and using their array of cameras and robotic arms, pick up the, the battery rocks, the modules, and bring them to the surface. And by using a fleet of these robots, we can actually do millions of tons a year. Uh, where we are right now, we've built two proof of concepts. Uh, the first proof of concept we, we built in um, 22, um, and that was a shallow water proof of concept uh, that really showed the robotic arm working, the vision system working, the autonomy, the buoyancy engine. And we are in the process of testing our second gen robot. This is the one that's rated at 6,000 meters or four miles. And we hope to have success of picking up a nodule from the deep ocean uh, by the end of this quarter, by the end of March this year. Um, what are your thoughts on the news um, that Norway recently approved uh, deep sea mining? Uh, I think it's encouraging. Um, you know, Norway has large amounts of seabed minerals in its exclusive economic zone. And so there was a vote in their parliament where there was an 80% majority to, to open the process. Now, um, we can maybe start a little bit on deep sea mining because it's not well understood, but some basic facts, there are actually four types of resource and each resource uh, has different metals and has different technology needed to, to mine. Uh, so we ourselves are focused on the polymetallic modules and I'm, I'm holding one up if people have video here. So these are potato sized nuggets, they're called nodules that form over millions of years in the deep ocean. And they're not attached, they just lie on the seabed floor and they have large quantities of nickel, cobalt, copper, uh, manganese, uh, and some rare earths. Uh, and uh, that's the approach we're going after. Norway uh, does not have this resource. It has more of the, um, the SMSs, um, which are crusts, and those are physically attached, a bit like land-based mining, so you do have to physically cut them. Uh, Norway also has some of the, the vents, the black spokers, both active and passive. Uh, so I think it's the passive ones that they're proposing going after. And then the fourth and final resource is rare earth muds. So in Japan, around some of their islands, they have a lot of rare earths actually in the mud that's in the deep seabed. So those are the four types of resource. Uh, these are found both in international waters, which are then regulated by a UN created organization called the International Seabed Authority, but they're also found in um, the national waters of countries. 
typically 200 nautical miles off their coast, uh, like the US, like the Cook Islands, like um, Saudi Arabia, like Norway. Uh, you just showed, a, obviously, a picture of a, a, a nodule. How many of those nodules do you think there is on the seabed across the world? Trillions. Um, oh, in yeah. fact, um, there have been uh, quite a lot of exploration over the last 150 years since they were discovered. So there are already uh, something like uh, almost 40 exploration permits issued for deep sea minerals. 31 of them by the international body in international waters. And as part of that, they have to do extensive surveying and baselining. Uh, in fact, some companies have even issued the NI uh, 43101s where they've actually defined precisely uh, the, the resource. Uh, and so one of the key numbers is abundance. So that's how many kilograms per meter square uh, of the nodules do you find? And typically in an area between Hawaii and Mexico, it's called the Claridon Clipperton zone, you get numbers between five to 20 kilograms per meter square. So that's a very high level of abundance. Um, well, let me just sort of summarize the state of the deep sea mining regulations um, and some of the players in the industry. Yeah, so the first thing to say is that each jurisdiction has its own regulations and its own timeline. So you have to be specific, but let me first start with the international regulations. So uh, in 1982, there was a UN convention on the law of the sea that established the creation of the International Seabed Authority, uh, which for the last 30 years has been working on, on, um, on regulating deep sea mining. So the exploration regulations were done over a decade ago um, and are in effect and, and have been issued uh, uh, over 31 permits. The exploitation regulations are in the final stages of getting adopted. Uh, they were first drafted about nine years ago um, and we are about to have the consolidated text published at the next ISA meeting, uh, the 29th uh, meeting in March. And uh, what that organization has public said is that they intend to uh, finalize those exploitation regulations this year, 2024, and get them legally adopted in early 2025. Um, the US uh, passed its, reg its regulations in 1982, so it already has the Hard Seabed Mineral Act. Uh, the Cook Islands passed its legislation to establish its regulator, the Seabed Minerals Authority, I believe around 2010. Uh, the exploration regulations are done, the exploitation are coming. They have issued already some drafts. Uh, and I could go on. You could talk about India, Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, Sweden, and many, many other countries. Uh, in um, fact, I did, post, I did post a blog post on this. So uh, if people are curious, if they go to impossiblemoles.com slash blog, uh, I actually wrote quite a lot about the current state of deep sea mine regulations. Yeah, we can include those in the show notes anyway. So um, that for obviously easy access for people to, uh, to have a look at that. Um, how does Impossible Metals um, approach to deep sea, deep sea mining sort of differ from obviously traditional uh, methods, uh, especially in terms of uh, minimizing harm to the seabed ecosystem. Yeah, 
Um, as I said, it's really why I created the company. I, I saw the dredging and riser pump system. So let's describe this. This was first designed in the 1960s and tested in the 1970s. And it's the same architecture that all other companies are using right now. Uh, there was a, a test in, in 21 and 22 with the same architecture. So it's basically a very, very large dredging machine that gets loads to the seabed floor. It has tracks and it has a, a big vacuum. So it injects water into the top five centimeters or so of the seabed and then sucks everything back. So what you end up is picking up, of course, the modules, but also a lot of the water and the seabed itself. Uh, and any life that happens to be on there. And then it pumps it through a sense, uh, a series of pipes uh, to up, up the uh, almost four miles uh, to the support ship, where in the support ship, it dewaters, it removes the water, it removes more of the sediment, and then discharges the sediment back into the midwater column. Uh, and then every few days, because there's only temporary storage on the mining ship, uh, you have to transfer the payload to a bulk transport ship. That's that's the architecture that I believe everybody else, and there's probably at least a dozen companies, Chinese, uh, Korean, European, et cetera, that are building this architecture. Uh, we took a clean sheet of paper and said, um, it's the 21st century now, we have incredible computers, uh, amazing robotics, a lot of AI, what could we do differently? And so we broke the problem into three areas. The physical collection, how do you get things off the seabed? The vertical transport, how do you get things from the seabed to the ship? And then the port transport, how do you get stuff from the ship to the port? And we just iterated. We brainstormed many different architectures and ultimately, we set we we uh, settled on the architecture that we have now built, uh, which is using these autonomous robots. And so, what the robot does is that it's a uh, battery powered, and you deploy it into the water. It does not have a tether. It autonomously descends. It gets close to the seabed floor, but does not land. It hovers by maintaining neutral buoyancy, and then it has a range of stereo cameras. And it uses the stereo cameras and lights uh, to uh, detect the module and ultimately control the robotic arm and the claw. And if we detect uh, megafauna, life that we can see, uh, a coral or a sponge, we know every 1% or so has this type of life on it, then the system will is programmed to leave that behind. The AI algorithms detect that life and says, okay, we're quarantining, we're not picking uh, a given area around there. So the vehicle keeps moving. It has multiple arms, um, at least 16. In the future, we'll have maybe 60. It's quite a big robot. Uh, once it has filled its payload, um, which you know could be as large as 25 metric tons, one shipping container, once that's full, the vehicle uses the battery to pump water out of our buoyancy engine. That makes the vehicle positively buoyant, so it will float to the surface. On the surface, we have designed an automated crane that will recover the vehicle, bring it on board, uh, we'll swap the battery pack or empty the payload, we'll do any maintenance, and then the vehicle can be redeployed. So approximately every three and a half hours, the vehicle can pick up 25 metric tons, and we have a whole fleet of them. So we could have over a hundred of these working concurrently. Uh, again, I think good thing for the show notes, we have a 90 second animation 
that really shows how that operation works. And I'll, I'll give you the link to, to put in the show notes for that. Um, can you elaborate on the technology and engineering, obviously behind these underwater vehicles used by uh, obviously the company for collecting uh, the metals, uh, which are critical obviously for EV batteries? Yeah, um, we called the company Impossible Metals because we had to invent a lot of technology. Now, there are AUVs, autonomous underwater vehicles today, but they're primarily kind of torpedo shaped and sensor and used to collect a lot of sensor data. So the biggest markets today are uh, offshore oil and gas, military applications and marine science. And so we can reuse a lot of those components, batteries, thrusters, navigation, communication, that stuff we can buy in. Of course, we still have to integrate it electrically, mechanically, and we have to write software for it. But to make this particular application work, where we had robotic arms, we're actually picking stuff up, and we want to maintain neutral buoyancy, we want to hover, we had to invent three key pieces of technology. Uh, the first technology is the buoyancy engine. So that's the, the capabilities to keep the vehicle neutral, to hover. And it's a little more complex because each time you pick up a rock, you're adjusting the weight of the vehicle. And so you have to compensate for that, otherwise it will sink. And so we needed good dynamic buoyancy. We needed something that could work at 6,000 meters. Um, and so that makes it pretty complex. So we designed our own pumps, our own buoyancy engine. We have multiple patents on that. Uh, the second key piece of technology we had to invent was a robotic arm. Uh, there are plenty of robotic arms that go on underwater vehicles, but they're not designed for speed. They're designed for slow operations, operating a valve, picking up one sample, etc. We needed a system where we could have multiple arms and they could move really quickly. Because as you know, mining is about speed. It's about how many millions of tons can you pick up in a year. So we took something that you would normally see in an industrial automation factory, a delta arm, where we have uh, free limbs and it can move incredibly quickly. So we've already proven that our arm can, from seeing the nodule to placing it in the internal uh, collection point, we can do that in two seconds. And that's super fast. So that's something that we had to uniquely design. Uh, also the end effect or the claw is a unique design. We wanted to minimize the sediment disturbance. Uh, so we have patents on that. And then the third area is really the AI algorithms. You know, this, it has to operate fully autonomously. There's no human operator. You, you program the mine mission and then it goes and executes it. And, and so the vehicle has to, of course, navigate itself, but, when it's actually picking, it has to physically find the nodule on the seabed and move the robotic arm over it so it can pick it up. Uh, we proved that, but now it also needs to detect the megafauna, the corals, the sponges, or other forms of life. So we have a very powerful NVIDIA GPU on board where we run those AI algorithms. So those are the three unique pieces of technology that we had to invent. What measures uh, will uh, impossible metals take to ensure obviously environmental sustainability uh, in their deep sea mining uh, operations, I suppose particularly in relation to protecting the seabed ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fundamental to, to what we do. I mean, we, we really architected a new system 
based on the fact that we didn't like the sediment plumes, the, these clouds of sediment that are generated from a tracked vehicle. Uh, we didn't want to have the noise associated with a riser pump system. Uh, we didn't want to have the biodiversity loss. The, we know there isn't a huge amount of biomass deep in the ocean. In fact, 70% of it is bacteria. So that shows how little real biomass is there, but it's super unique. Like you go um, a few tens of miles away and you'll find completely different species. And so the biodiversity is really important to us. And, and so by developing a system that can do selective harvesting, where we can program what to leave, how much to leave behind, and the fact that we don't generate sediment plumes and we don't need to generate a large amount of noise by pumping the material up and down uh, the water column. Uh, we don't need differential positioning, which is the big thrusters on the ships that keep them very, sti very still. Unfortunately, that generates huge amounts of noise, and that's at the top water column where you have big uh, marine life like whales and dolphins. So, you know, we took the science statement that already talked about the criticism of the 1960s approach, and that was part of our input for how we could build a better system. Uh, we also spent a lot of time on the economics because there's no point having a massively better environmental system if it costs much more than the incumbent. So we try to do both, you know, much less environmental footprint, much less cost. And, and ultimately, we will do trials. We will have marine scientists inspect and visit and document and publish. But, you know, intuitively, you know, you have a huge machine that has tracks that is, you know, literally crawling on the seabed, vacuuming everything up versus a fleet of vehicles that just hover and selectively pick up and avoid life. And, and so I think it's it's pretty obvious to show that one has much less impact, but we will ultimately get marine scientists to publish. And, you know, deep sea mining is highly regulated. Uh, you typically have to spend about $50 million doing environmental baseline work before you can submit an exploitation permit request. Uh, that's part of your environmental impact and social assessment. So all of this work will ultimately be contributed to a regulator uh, before they grant permission for, for deep sea mining. Um, are there any sort of regulatory uh, or ethical considerations uh, that the company will address uh, in their deep sea mining activities? Um, and how do you sort of navigate these challenges? So, I mean, we desperately need these metals. I think everyone knows that we're in an energy transition and we're primarily transitioning to electrification. Electrification needs, needs metals to either transport the electricity or to store it. Uh, it's also a fact that there's an order of magnitude more of these metals in the seabed than on land, you know, for two reasons. 71% uh, of our ocean, uh, of our planet is ocean. So it's a huge area compared to the 29%, which is, you know, the land. And we know nobody lives on the ocean, right? I mean, so when you look at the environmental and social impacts, you have an environment where we have not yet mined. So we have very high grade uh, and people don't live there and the life that there is less. So from my point of view, in time, we can get to full circularity, but that's probably not for another 50 years. In the meantime, we need massive quantities. So shouldn't we get them where 
A, we have the biggest resource. B, we can do the mining with the least environmental and social impact. And C, we can do it with the lowest cost because we don't have to build new infrastructure. We reuse ships and ports and our ore grade is so high. Like in the Clarendon Clipperton zone, the nickel equivalent grade with the byproduct credits for cobalt, copper, and manganese is 3.2%. You don't find resources of this size, with this grade, with this cost, with this little environmental impact on land. And so I'm completely convinced we should do this. And when deep sea mining starts to scale, I think it will stop the need for land-based mines in nickel and cobalt because they just economically won't be able to compete. Um, we'll have by far the lowest cost. Um, in what way does Impossible uh, Metals collaborate with the environmental organisations um, to engage, obviously, in research to better understand uh, and minimise, obviously, the environmental impact of deep-sea mining? Yeah, so, um, you know, every six months or so, we have a marine uh, scientific roundtable of which we publish uh, the notes where we are getting input from the experts on the design of our vehicle, how to conduct studies, how to minimize the impact. Uh, and so that's work that we've been on doing for the last 18 months or so. You can see uh, written reports uh, on our website. Uh, but as we are entering into the phase where we're about to be doing ocean trials, we will encourage and, and hope that we will get marine scientists to actually publish uh, results from those trials. Um, that's something that you know we haven't yet had the capabilities because we're only just beginning to do deep water testing. But absolutely, you know, we we want to be able to have published independent scientific data that shows that our sediment disturbance is much less, our biodiversity is much higher because of the selective harvesting, our noise and light pollution are much less. So we can say it, we can show it, but ultimately we want marine scientists uh, to, to publish and uh, to have documented evidence. How impossible metals ensure transparency uh, in their operations? Um, obviously, particularly regarding uh, the extraction and utilization of metals uh, from deep sea mining. Yeah, we're, we're extremely committed to transparency. It's it's very important to us. So, uh, for instance, the, um, the, the Demo Day event that we held uh, May of last year, we published all the presentations, all the videos, all the telemetric data from that test. And you'll see us continue to do this with, with other tests. But when we get to actual production, uh, we're pretty keen on supporting a battery passport so that for every ton of material that's collected, you will know precisely what date, what time, what location on the seabed, and we'll uh, provide video data uh, because our vehicles have uh, like huge numbers of cameras. The Eureka 2 vehicle we're testing right now has something like 13 cameras uh, on board. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to be completely transparent and make all of that available to people. Are there any specific regions or, or, or sites in the deep sea that Impossible Metals will target for, uh, um, obviously, your operation? Um, and what criteria uh, are considered when obviously selecting some of these locations? 
Yeah, so so deep sea mining is is highly regulated. So you can't just go anywhere. You have to get permission. And typically that starts with expiration. So you need to receive an expiration permit. This would be typically 75,000 square kilometers is the typical size. And it's defined, you know, GPS coordinates on, on a map. Um, and so you, you get your expiration permit and then you do the expiration work, you do the resource definition, the environmental baseline, you collect all the data and then you submit that to the regulator and ultimately then you get the permission to do exploitation. Now, off the locations, um, there are three major areas that we are interested in. Um, the Cook Islands, um, they are within their own exclusive economic zone, so they are their own regulator. It's called the Seabed Minerals Authority. Uh, they've already issued three exploration permits already, um, and those companies are working on them. So that's a good location. Uh, the second, I would say, would be somewhere like the Clarendon-Clipperton zone. That's an area in international waters between Hawaii and Mexico. Something like 19 exploration permits have already been issued in that area. Uh, and then the third would be maybe in uh, U.S. territory. So, you know, U.S. has uh, a large uh, seabed, uh, both on the, the continental U.S. on the east and west, we do know there are nodules uh, in there, but also around minority islands, Hawaii and others. Um, and uh, in 1982, Congress passed uh, the legislation that allows the Department of the Interior to actually lease uh, these areas. So those are probably the three areas that we are the most interested in in the short term. Uh, longer term, I think there will be other areas as well. How does uh, Impossible Metals contribute to the broader uh, conversation on sustainable resource um, extraction and the transition to obviously greener technologies. Yeah, I mean, we are trying to show people that deep sea minerals has a great opportunity here. You know, uh, we, I think everyone agrees we need 500% uh, more mining to get these transition metals. To get to net zero, uh, I saw some data from the IEA saying a thousand new mines by 2050. So the question is, do we do this where we have the biggest impact, which is controlled by China, where the environmental aspects are maybe not as well, um, you know, um, um, recovered or, or respected, um, or do we do it in an area where the resource is much larger, the costs are going to be much less, and uh, with our technology, the environmental impact is, is going to be a fraction. Um, I, I think, as your audience knows, you know, nickel is a key transition metal, especially for batteries in EVs. Uh, today, the biggest uh, reserves are in Indonesia uh, and then Australia. Um, and unfortunately, almost all of those mines in Indonesia are in rainforests and they're operated by Chinese companies. And, and so you have a huge amount of biodiversity and biomass and carbon sinks being destroyed to get at the nickel laterite ores that are directly below the rainforest. Uh, and then they use uh, HPAL, you know, high pressure acid leaching as their refining technology. And uh, they stack up the tailings, you know, they dry them out, they stack them up, uh, but it's a seismic active area. 
And often you hear of people being forced by soldiers to move away from their village because there's a mine. Uh, so that's nickel, cobalt, the DRC in the Congo is the biggest reserves today. Uh, we read often about the human rights violations of children dying in mines, being paid one to two dollars a day. Uh, what if we could replace all of that with the seabed? What if, you know, one of the things I really like about the international treaty is that it's there for everybody. There's this concept of the benefits for all humankind. So there will be a royalty. Uh, the ISA, the International Seabed Authority, is now deciding how will that royalty be spent. My view is we should pay children in the Congo to go to school instead of working in a deep mine. Um, and that potentially could happen. So uh, I, I feel very good about what we're doing. I know there are a lot of environmentalists against deep sea mining because we haven't done it. Um, but we do need these resources. And with our technology, we really preserve the habitat. You know, we don't destroy it. And I believe that's the first time ever that we've been able to do mining where in situ we preserve that habitat. You know, if we see life, we leave it behind. Uh, I don't believe that's ever happened before. And that's really something that our technology and the deep sea make possible. Uh, can you discuss the ongoing future uh, innovations that impossible metals um, are exploring to sort of further improve the sustainability and efficiency of their deep sea mining uh, operations? Yeah, I mean, we obviously have a path to scale our technology. So um, we're about to test what we call Eureka 2 uh, in the deep ocean. Uh, but Eureka 2 is, is only has a 100 kilogram payload. So it's about the size of a small car, um, three arms. It's not large enough for a production operation. So we are in development of Eureka 3. Uh, this is a much larger vehicle that has 16 arms and has six tons, 6,000 kilogram payload. So that's the next major design. Um, it's basically the same architecture, just bigger. Uh, and we are also in design of a, an automated launch and recovery system, an automated crane, uh, to speed up the operation. So those are two developments. Uh, we also have a small team that's um, researching how could we do better refining? And this could be applicable to both land uh, and seabed resources. You know, today we have primarily two approaches. Uh, pyro, where we roast at high temperatures, or, or hydro, where we leach with, with strong acids. Uh, what if there was a third approach? What if we could use naturally occurring bacteria to break down the ore without any of the negatives of large energy or large amounts of tailings, toxic waste? And, and so we have a small team that's researching that. Um, and, you know, we hope that that's something that we could scale up, not just for the seabed, but for land-based ores as well. And lastly, just wanted to just give us a um, prediction of what's happening with you guys over the next sort of six, 12 months, the outlook. Um, and also, is there anything else that you want to uh, to tell our audience uh, around, around, I suppose, your company and your mission uh, in deep sea mining? Yeah, I, I think the next six to 12 months are, you know, test and succeed in picking up uh, a nodule in the deep ocean, that's a big milestone for us with our autonomous underwater vehicle. We will be only the second company 
uh, in the last 50 years to, to achieve that, and one that's using very, very new technology. So that's, that's the major milestone. Um, obviously, we're a startup, so we will look to raise a, a Series A in the next six, six to 12 months as well that will allow us to continue the mission and, and keep going. Um, final thing I would say is, um, you know, everything you kind of read about deep sea mining is, is kind of based on this 1960s invented technology. If you use 21st techno century technology, you can kind of change the equation. And, you know, I'd reiterate by, you know, it's a fact that the reserves in the seabed are orders of magnitude bigger than all the all locations on land. That's a fact. It's also going to be much less expensive because we don't need new infrastructure. We don't need to build a, you know, a, a motorway or a train line or a village or a power plant. We just reuse ships and ports. And the ore grade is so high. You know, 200 years ago, we had ore grades of 20%, but nowadays we're at a fraction of a percent. But in the ocean, we're at 3.2. Uh, and then finally, with our technology, we can do it with without hurting any people. There's no people living in the deep ocean. Our system is fully automated. Uh, and from the environmental standpoint, our AI detects life and preserves it. So, you know, in all of those metrics, economic, size of the resource, and uh, environmental and social impact, I believe we're a massive win. Um, and that's why I think you know, from 2030, uh, we're going to have a big place uh, generating, you know, many, many millions of tons of, of ore that will contribute to, you know, 10 to 20% of the worldwide production of nickel and cobalt in, in the next decade. Oliver, really appreciate your time. Thank you for um, sharing your insights to deep sea mining um, and obviously impossible uh, uh, metals as well. And wondered if... Um, if uh, our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, especially if they want to follow follow the story and follow um, how how you're going with uh, obviously the, the new technology and uh, and going into operation, um, how can they go about doing that? What social media platforms are you on? Yeah, I, I think the best one is our website, impossiblemetals.com. Uh, we have a YouTube channel called Impossible Metals. Um, we have a quite active LinkedIn uh, page. Um, and X Twitter as well, uh, but it's all linked from our, our website. So I would I would send people to impossiblemetals.com. Yeah, certainly. And um, they'll be included in the show notes so people can have uh, easy access to them. So um, like I said, really appreciate your time. Uh, perhaps you can come on uh, later this year, next year, and uh, give us an update. Sounds great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah no worries. Um, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, obviously, we, we on this podcast is mainly all about mining on the land, but this is this is obviously something different, and there's obviously a, a big future in deep sea mining. So please share this episode uh, to as far as wide as possible. People that you know in the industry, no matter what country continent you are, please keep sharing these episodes. Really appreciate your continued support, and until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.